Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill. And joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Seth Jason. From Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early. And from Motley Fool Global Gains, Tim Hansen. Guys, good to see you. Quite a week this week. Hey, big week. Good to see you, Chris. Had, wow. the, uh, had the earthquake. We've got... Uh, hurricane. Hurricane. We have hurricane. We're only halfway through the hurricane. Exactly. Hopefully, we'll be here next week if Irene doesn't decimate us. Uh, also, a big week in the investing world with Steve Jobs and Warren Buffett, both making headlines for very different reasons. We will get to those stories in a moment, but we will start with the big macro. On Friday, Fed Chief Ben Bernanke said the central bank still has the tools to stimulate the economy. But Seth, uh, Mr. Bernanke did not actually provide details about when or even whether the Fed might use these tools. I think he had to say almost nothing this time around because there's a lot of political pressure on both sides of the spectrum. I also think he needs to sort of... uh he needs to duck and cover, and I think he needs to uh, be careful about whipping the market into a frenzy. So uh, immediately after he said not much of anything, mm-hmm. uh, the market uh, dropped like crazy, that it rallied. And this is one of those cases where the prognosticators, or, or as I call them, um, morons <laughs> out there, are trying to decide, wait, do we want more, do we want more stimulus? Because that would be good. Or maybe since he didn't say we're getting more stimulus, maybe that means the economy is actually kind of strong, and maybe that's good. In the end, I think we just have to wait it out. James? Initially, I found myself mildly angry with Bernanke for, for giving a speech about nothing. Um, but then I realized we've come a long way since Alan Greenspan. He basically said, yeah, we're vigilant. Of course, he's vigilant. That's his job to be vigilant, right? Um, <laughs> but I think he did handle it well. He basically said, look, we'll wait. We'll do what we can soon. And the market has, has, has kind of come to its senses. So I think this is actually a good outcome. Tim? You know, what was it, 10, 15 years ago, everybody was watching the size of Alan Greenspan's briefcase, you know, as he came in and out of the Fed building, just as I said, trying to interpolate. what he has in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Just trying to interpolate what's going to happen next. And people seem to be doing that now. And, you know, from Bernanke's standpoint, you know, he is in a tough position. Anything he says, people glom onto and, you know, and then push out to the X degree or Nth degree and, 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 and react to it. So, you know, he, in some ways he has to be noncommittal and, and, and just judge the situation as it comes. And I think that's what he's doing. And that's probably the prudent, the prudent course, as difficult as that and uncertain as that is. To Seth's point about uh, another stimulus, the possibility of that, uh, let's just go around the table. How likely do you think it is that by the end of the year, there is going to be a third round of stimulus from the Fed? Uh, I I hate making these kind of predictions. 50-50. We got new GDP uh, numbers this week and revisions, and the economy is is really limping along. So uh, who knows? I think it all comes down to the fear cycle, and that's not something you can predict. It's hard to predict the mood of crowds. James? I say sub-50%. I mean, it is... The Fed does have other tools, not to use that word again, but that is the only tool that's left is 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 is, is some sort of stimulus like that. So uh, the Fed might use it when it doesn't have to, but I think less than fifty percent. Tim, I think it's it's closer to zero, just because we're entering an election season. And whenever we do that, the government goes into sort of a paralysis of sorts and doesn't do anything because nobody wants to get blamed if something goes wrong. You don't want to commit treason. The Fed wow. is technically trying to help the economy. That's that's dangerous to your reelection prospects. Treason is. Steve Jobs has stepped down as the CEO of Apple. Longtime chief operating officer and interim CEO Tim Cook has been named as his replacement. Um, There are several parts to this story, Tim Hanson, but uh, let's just start with uh, Steve Jobs' legacy. 
I mean, it's got to be a good one, right? I mean, Apple was a great company when he was there the first time around. Then he got he got sort of pushed out the door. Apple struggled. He came back, and, and Apple went on to do great things again. So obviously, you know, his his effect on Apple has been enormous. He's now created what I think is the most valuable company in the United States at the, uh, right now, more valuable than Exxon. Um, obviously, hugely innovative. Uh, he's enriched a lot of lives, technologically speaking, which is which is a nice thing to do. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens next for Apple. Leadership transitions are notoriously hard in the corporate world. Um, he's stepping down ostensibly for for health reasons, which may actually be a good ostensibly? thing. Like I said, I'm breaking ground every day here. <laughs> um, he is, you know, his successor, Tim Cook, you know, Steve Jobs is, is obviously a hugely egotistical, potentially megalomaniacal person. Um, and the same was oh come on. <laughs> the same was the case of Howard Schultz at Starbucks, right? And, 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 and Howard in, Hughes and and Howard Hughes, and he brought in Jim Donald at Starbucks. Never gave him a fair shot. Uh, constantly spoke over him on conference calls and that sort of thing. And, and then Howard Schultz came back. The question is, will Steve Jobs let Tim Cook do his thing next? You know, and Apple can then can probably go on and do good things. For Tim, you know, it's probably he may benefits. not have a choice. I mean, I don't. Well, think that's what I'm saying. I think it benefits yeah. Tim Cook, you know, in, in some ways. And Steve Jobs has to step back and really step out of the out of the limelight for a while, um, and we'll see what happens. James? On the plus side, they've had years to to kind of plan this, and I think obviously Steve Jobs has probably not been. 100% active, or at least as he used to be, w- with his ongoing illness. But Tim Cook is more of a supply chain guy. He's, he's reported to haggle over a penny or half a penny uh, in these negotiations, and, whereas Steve Jobs is much more of a sort of a user experience guy. There's not many people out there. I mean, he's, he's innovative, but more in an, uh, an assimilation type of way, not necessarily raw innovation, but he's done uh, uh, hardware, software, cell phones. He's uh, like Madonna. Pixar. You take, you take something new movies. that's yeah. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, I mean, an incredible track people out there yeah. who can do that, and I doubt Tim Cook is one of them. Uh, Seth? I think it, it, it's really unknown because part of, the, part of the, the aura of Steve Jobs is not just being able to, to get everybody in the company to do what he wants, which you know, reportedly was due to some bullying and other things, but to sort of come to consumers and say, this is what you have to have, and sort of everyone's eyes glaze over and say, yes, it is. I still think that, that's, that he had a special something or a weird something there, and that if, for instance, you have somebody else introducing an iPad, which is, is kind of a, a, a strange hybrid device that you know is a little clunky to start with and maybe doesn't have any obvious uses, I wonder if everybody runs out and buys one if, you know, Tim Cook says you have to have this device and and I don't know that I don't know that they do well and to your point about uh, Jobs' ability to um, sort of anticipate what consumers may or may not want um, he was asked you know uh, about the iPad and he was asked sort of what market research went into that and his answer was none it's not the consumer's job to know what they want and I, I think you're right I think he he did have that ability to sort of uh, anticipate what people wanted before they even knew it themselves. Well, Henry Ford, I believe, famously said, or is, is, this is attributed to him, that you know, if it were up to my, if it were up to the people, and I gave them what they wanted, they'd, I'd give them a horse that ate less. Yeah, yeah, exactly, a faster, a faster horse. horse. Well, there's, an, you know, there's an academic question, kind of in the business and investing world, about you know, is a, is a great company great because it has great leadership, or is a great company great because anybody can anybody can run it? You know, we're going to find that out now with Apple, but I think it's clear, you know, to, to the point you were making, is that Steve Jobs, in many ways, made Apple great. Apple's clearly a great company. He made it great by sort of forcing onto the world the, these visions that he had that were ultimately very successful. Can can Tim Cook do it? Apple's greatness probably probably rests on that on that chance. Poor Tim Cook, though. It's sort of like being the son of a famous person. Like, whatever you do, it's going to be... 
A tra- disappointment. Yeah, he's, he's no yeah, Steve yeah. Jobs. Well, transition is usually you know the other sort of conspiracy theory question is in, in in leadership succession is are you are you a greater leader because your company goes on or your team or your you know whatever country goes on to be great after you're gone or what if it falls into shambles do you then look better in hindsight because you made it great while you were there and maybe you failed uh, you know maybe you should be judged more or maybe you're a failure or maybe you should be judged less charitably if it falls apart after you're gone well, leadership you succession popped, yeah you know. such a huge part of the CEO job it'll be interesting to see how Steve Jobs did at that. I think we've got a, probably a pretty good pipeline at Apple, my guess, and so we probably won't know the answer to this question for you know several years. Uh, Seth, you mentioned Henry Ford. Um, do you think Henry Ford is, is sort of the best analogy? I mean, there have been a no, lot of comparisons no, 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 this no. week. Is, no it, is it Ford? Is it Walt Disney? I think it's somebody more like Disney. Um, Ford, I mean, Ford really changed the entire world's living standards in a profound, profound way with the automobile and with his manufacturing techniques. I don't think he, I don't think Steve Jobs is anywhere in that league. Yeah, he gave us some niftier computers and some better, you know, headsets and things, but that that doesn't change the world in nearly the same way. So to wrap up on Apple. Um you said we may not know for a couple of years. Um, what what is the big question you have about Apple going forward with Tim Cook as CEO? Can Tim Cook uh, convince people that they have to have the next kind of weird thing that Apple produces? James, uh, will it be broken up into different companies that can be managed by people who do those pieces better individually? Tim, what are they going to do with all their cash? I mean, they're 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 famously sitting on a huge pile of money, which is can be both dangerous and and awesome. For a uh, for a new CEO, you know, as an investor, I'm, I think this is a time to wait and see. Almost all the analysts that cover the stock reiterated their 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 buy recommendations mm-hmm. on it. I don't know, like I said earlier, leadership succession is really really hard. Warren Buffett made headlines on Thursday when Berkshire Hathaway bought five billion dollars worth of Bank of America. Uh, James, earlier this month, Bank of America stock had hit a 52-week low. Um, this single-handedly uh, boosted the stock. What did you make of the deal? It sure did. Uh, and, and Buffett is really doing a good job of, of twisting the arm of a dying man here. Um, <laughs> the, the, the patient looks like he's going to visit the patient, but he's really squeezing him. And 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 he's he's getting. Let me just walk through this. He's getting a six percent dividend off the bat. Uh, if they don't pay that, interest accrues on at preferred 8%, shares. On right? preferred shares to begin with. Who's higher up on the pecking order? So wait, you're saying I can't get the deal that we Warren Buffett get got? Close to the deal Warren Buffett got, and he has enough warrants to buy almost seven percent of the company. That's worth. Uh, three or probably a little over three Regular billion dollars now. Later. So, so he can buy seven percent yeah, common later. So now okay. he he his net is is less than two billion dollars uh, in terms of, of the investment. So it's not even five billion, and, and he's higher up. And plus, he brings sort of the Warren Buffett self fulfilling prophecy here because, as we've said before, the first thing CEO Brian Moynihan did was develop a credibility problem, and and Buffett has a lot of credibility. So his investment might bring follow on money and, and and could conceivably change the course for this bank. Tim? What we've been saying, I think, about Bank of America, about banks generally, is that they're, they're, they're really hard to analyze. You don't know what's on the balance sheet. And the fact is, it's left to the bank itself to decide what the value of its assets are. So it can write them down at whatever pace it deems appropriate. And that, that's, that's a dangerous thing about investing in banks. Um, and obviously, if people start to lose confidence in how they're writing down their assets, that's when big problems start to evolve. So this self-fulfilling prophecy thing, for Buffett, this works out enormously well, because as soon as he puts money in, everybody goes, oh. Everything must be fine. Everything must be fine. And then all of a sudden, you've solved the problem of, I don't have faith in how they're writing down or, or not writing down their accounts. And, and that was going to be 
the big issue with Bank of America, and and he sort of takes it off the table. And it's not even like he's done all this detailed analysis. I bet. Apparently, oh, he oh, said oh, he, he thought oh. about this idea in the bathtub. He thought about Brian yeah. Moynihan in the bathtub <laughs> on his iPad, and then getting a call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just glad Broido's on vacation this week, so he doesn't rub our nose in this. Yes, uh, our engineer Steve Broido, boy, he picked making, a, making us picked look a like good week to go on vacation. Yeah. He missed the uh, the earthquake. Yeah, uh, he's on vacation with David Sokol. Is that true or <laughs> no? No truth to that rumor, folks. Steve <laughs> did not have prior knowledge. Advanced knowledge. Yes. Can, yes. I, can I just? I think I'm the only person on the East Coast who didn't feel the earthquake. I just I didn't even notice it. Where were you? I was walking out of Chipotle, and these women pushed by me, and and. Uh, I thought it was a bee or something. I, I didn't know what it wait, was. Wait, wait, we we had we our, were all working. We, we had, had a, Chipotle. We had our. <laughs> I, 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 I ate a little finer cuisine. Well, it's not fine cuisine. I just you know wanted Chipotle. We so. had a company meeting. I was going to say it's our monthly all company meeting, and you were just like taking a walk down to Chipotle. <laughs> Chipotle's not even that close. <laughs> all right, just to wrap up on Buffett and Bank of America, Tim, you were talking about succession planning at Apple. Um, this deal that Berkshire Hathaway got. Um, when Warren Buffett is no longer in charge of Berkshire Hathaway, does Berkshire get, still get this deal? Or is it the Buffett magic that helps them get this deal? Um, I don't know if they get this exact deal. It's nice to have a lot of money and a great brand name. And, and those things are going to persist at Berkshire Hathaway even after Warren Buffett is gone. The answer to the question is, you know, who ultimately takes over for Buffett and, and how, how right does he get succession planning? Um, I know... I know, uh, at least I am skeptical of how well he's done his succession planning at, at, at Berkshire, so it, it will be interesting to watch. Coming up, as Groupon prepares for an IPO, the company is coming under greater scrutiny. So how is Groupon's CEO handling the pressure? A recent memo provides some clues. Details in a moment. I don't love the mountain. I don't love the sea. I don't love Jesus. He never done a thing for me. I ain't pretty like my sister. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in the studio with Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hansen. Shares of Tiffany up on Friday after the company's latest earnings. Seth, they're getting it done at Tiffany's. Net sales up 30%. The company raised guidance. Times are great for people worldwide if they've got money. And I've been buying are, a lot for my wife. I'll just disclose that. Yeah, they are spending a lot at Tiffany. I mean, you've got you've got twenty plus percent revenue growth in all of these geographic segments, even higher in uh, Asia Pacific, doing great in Japan, doing really well in the United States. I, I, it's really hard to believe they also have managed at this time, and even though a lot of what they sell has you know deal with rising gold prices and mm. other high price commodities, they've actually managed to expand their margins. Tiffany's is, is really doing a great job, and it's just part of that bifurcated economy uh, that we've spoken about on the show so many times. Also on Friday, shares of Pandora up big after the internet radio company reported earnings for the first time as a public company. James, it was not a particularly profitable quarter, but net sales uh, were more than double than a year ago. What did you think? Yeah, net sales were up, and they've been, they've been up uh, triple digits for like the past six quarters, which is great for Pandora to its credit. Uh, profit depends on, on who's uh, logging the profit, I guess. Pandora likes to report its own numbers, its own profit, and that's minus stock options expense, which is... if, if 
anybody out there has worked for a startup company and, and gotten at least partially paid in options, you know that those employees wouldn't be there if it weren't for those options. So it's, it's, it's kind of a cheesy move. I'd give them an F in accounting for, for, for that <laughs> measure. But the company is, is still growing very quickly. Seth? Still primarily advertising-based, but I expected when I looked at the numbers for this to be a, a company I hated more. And it looks to me <laughs> like they actually could make a go of it, but that depends on there being sort of the one and only uh, player in this space. And of course, they're not. Uh, maybe they can outlast the others, but I think uh, you need to be the winner to take all here. And finally, Groupon is getting ready for its IPO. The Daily Deal website is in the quiet period. Uh, but guys, fortunately, that is not stopping CEO Andrew Mason. In a memo to employees, Mason lashed out at what he called, quote, insane criticism from the media. Seth. <laughs> I simply said <laughs> that if you don't count your expenses, you're lying. I'm sorry, Ant. I didn't say Andrew was lying. I'm just implying that the accounting looks like lies to me. And he signs Same it. Are, are you referring to their their <laughs> filing with the SEC? Their their use of the adjusted consolidated segment operating we income. We called shenanigans on that. So did almost everybody else. And finally, the SEC was forced to call shenanigans on it too. So I'm not sure what Andrew has to whine about here. And and to their credit, in their latest filing, they have dropped the ACSOI. Metric. Shocking. Oh, be- <laughs> shocking, because the SEC isn't going to let you go public if I th- you do I think do it was that. just because price to ACSOI was too hard to say. That <laughs> was too much to of say. a mouthful. No, seriously, that I, what, what's he whining about? The fact that everybody thinks they have no competitive advantage? That's pretty obvious. Well, early in the show, we were talking about uh, you know some noted business leaders, Steve Jobs, uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, uh, Tim, Andrew's never going to Tim, be how do you think Andrew Mason that? is, is um, gearing up to being a CEO of a public company? This is going to be an entertaining run. (laughs) I'll say that. They can't go public soon enough? It's pretty much impossible to replicate the idea of a coupon business. I mean, I'm excited about the conference calls. (laughs) You know, if if you thought those Enron, F-bombs were fun, these could could be entertaining. He doesn't take criticism. He's already on the defensive for a lot of really good reasons. I mean, they're struggling in China. This China thing is a disaster for them. Yep. And uh, it's only, and that I think is the canary in the coal mine. It's only going to get. Weirder and worser. And to think, uh, you know, we kicked off the year in in grand style with Groupon with that fabulous Super Bowl ad uh, with Timothy Hutton. But uh, you know, a sign of things to come. A sign, yeah. But you know what? We, we we've talked about that before. We're going to take the high road. We're we're, we're done with that. Uh, Seth, Jason, James Early, Tim Hansen, guys. We'll see you later in the show. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Thank you. Tibet, one of the most beautiful places in the world. This is Timothy Hutton. The people of Tibet are in trouble. Their very culture. Is, is this, in this is the group on it? <laughs> but they still whip up an amazing fish curry. There we go. All right, guys, a new movie about Bernie Madoff is in the theaters. Coming up, we will revisit our interview with Diana Enriquez, senior financial writer for The New York Times and author of The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff and the Death of Trust. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Even in the age of hyperbole, the story was beyond belief. A multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme that lasted for decades, stretched around the globe, and ensnared some of the richest, wisest, and most respected people in the world. So writes my guest this week, Diana Henriquez is a senior financial writer at the New York Times and the author of the new book, The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff and the Death of Trust. Diana, thanks so much for being here. Great to be here, Chris. Uh, You write that this was a different type of Ponzi scheme. In that Bernie Madoff appealed to people's fear more than their greed. How did the scheme work, and why did it work? 
Well, it it was a unique species of of, uh, of crime, and I think that how it worked um, was pretty basic for all Ponzi schemes. You know, a Ponzi scheme is a liar with a bank account. You know, he <laughs> deposits money at one end, and he writes checks at the other end. So as a as a crime, a Ponzi scheme is about as elementary as you can get. But this was a remarkably well-camouflaged crime. It was like this Potemkin village uh, set up in front of that very basic, simple Ponzi scheme machinery. So he had old letterhead stationery. Uh, from his previous addresses, so that if he needed to paper the files with uh, an old backdated document, it was available. He had a computer program that would allow him to generate something on his screen in his offices that looked for all the world like Wall Street's central clearinghouse, showing that your stocks and bonds that he supposedly had purchased for you were safe and sound in that independent third-party clearinghouse account. It was all bogus. It was completely fake. So when I say it was a well-defended fraud, that's not to excuse the regulators who ignored so many tips and bungled so many investigations, but I hope it does help uh, readers at least understand uh, what a a twisted and tortured path it was uh, to try to unravel this fraud from the uh, remarkable um, charade that Madoff was conducting there. And it did work, as you said, Chris, because he pushed the right button at the right time. He wasn't trying to pull people in out of greed. He was trying to pull in people who were frightened about the way the markets were changing. And I have to say, reading your book, one of the things I was struck with was, boy, Bernie Madoff really, he worked hard. I mean, he went to a yeah. lot of trouble. This is, this is uh, I mean, it, it seems like it would have been even easier and certainly less work if he had actually just invested honestly. It probably would have been, except he never could have invested honestly on the scale he was pretending to invest. Remember, at the time of his arrest, he was allegedly managing just under $65 billion. That would have made him twice as big as J.P. Morgan Chase, three times as big as George Soros. I mean, he was, it would have been the biggest money manager in the world. And so trying to do the kinds of strategy he claimed to be doing out there in the real marketplace where the rest of us could feel him shove us around, you know, when he came in to buy $65 billion worth of stock and sell it again, I think we'd all have felt it. So that was the limitation on reality. He could only operate that investment strategy in this wonderland that he created there on the 17th floor at the, at the Lipstick Building. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Diana Henriquez, author of The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff and the Death of Trust. So was Bernie Madoff ever legit? Was he ever a legitimate investor and trader, or has he just been a con man from the beginning? Well, I think he's, he has been a legitimate businessman. He certainly founded a uh, apparently successful over-the-counter trading firm back in the dawn of that giddy go-go years in the 1960s market. In the over-the-counter market especially, gains were just extraordinary in those years. They're not very well documented. I know it's hard for today's uh, listeners and readers to understand, but those were the days when you couldn't look NASDAQ prices up in the newspaper or, or tap them in on, uh, on Yahoo. Uh, so it was a... a untransparent market, but a very profitable one. It was not unusual to be able to buy uh, over-the-counter shares one day and sell them for twice that the next day, uh, double your money. So, yes, I think he made money as a trader. Um, As his firm grew and developed, he developed what I've been able to document as a respected line of business in arbitrage activities, 
I've talked to people at other firms who remember doing business in the 70s with the Madoff firm. So these were legitimate trades. And by the time of his arrest, as you know, uh, his legitimate brokerage firm, which was a wholesale trading house, was one of the largest on the street. Its clients included Charles Schwab and Merrill Lynch and Fidelity Mutual Funds. He was doing wholesale trades for virtually every big retail house in the, in the country. So there was a legitimate business, which, of course, raises the question of why did he cheat? And I think, uh, I, I, I think he just couldn't accept failure. I detail a, uh, an event in the book that happened in 1962 where he had about four dozen accounts from friends, neighbors, you know, extended family, and he invested it in newly issued over-the-counter stocks. Now, this is a wild and rocky market in those days, and he put these conservative savers' money in these, you know, the equivalent of, you know, technology bubble stocks, and they exploded. They just popped and became worthless when the market hit an air pocket in 1962. But rather than admit that he had failed and lost all their money, he covered it up. He used all the money he'd made at the firm in the first two years, bought the shares back out of their account at their original price, let those investors believe they'd navigated that air pocket safely, and burnished his reputation. He just couldn't admit that he had failed. You've interviewed Bernie Madoff twice uh, in person, in prison. Yes. What is he like? He's a very pleasant, harmless-seeming man. I, and I say that understanding how chilling it is. Um, if I had met him without any baggage, I would have said, you know, interesting, very knowledgeable about the market, fun to talk to, low-key, not trying to impress you. Madoff is a very unusual Ponzi schemer, Chris. He, uh, he's never the most charming man in the room. He makes you feel like you're the most charming person in the room. He made me think I was, he, he acted as if I were the most interesting, most professional reporter he'd ever met. He has this gift of showing back to you your very best self, making you feel like you're so smart and you're so intelligent. And so if you decide to trust Bernie Madoff, why would you second-guess yourself, given how intelligent and smart you are? So I've, I've really never seen a Ponzi schemer whose tentacles were quite so twisted, whose form of seduction was quite so um, Byzantine. He, he really was a master at it. And men who were self-made, who took great pride in what they had been uh, built of their lives, who had very well-honed, shall we call them bullfeather detectors, <laughs> but Madoff never triggered their, their, their alarm uh, wires. They, he, he never seemed to be trying to impress them, never seemed to be trying to show off how much he knew, and perversely, that impressed them. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Our guest is Diana Henriquez, author of The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff and the Death of Trust. As I said, you interviewed him twice in prison. How did he change in, in, the, in the times between you, your interviews? Well, quite dramatically. Uh, although he was uh, a subdued man in August compared to the man I had known on the street in the years I'd covered him um, as a business reporter, and the man we saw striding across the television screen so endlessly after his arrest. When I met him the first time, he, he seemed more subdued, but still very dapper, very crisp, 
a very firm grip on what he wanted to say. He only lost his composure once when he talked about his wife, Ruth, and her decision to stay with him after his arrest. Other than that, he was very uh, calm and very orderly and businesslike. When I saw him in February of this year, which was almost exactly two months after his older son, Mark Madoff, committed suicide on the second anniversary of his father's arrest, he was dramatically different. I, I approached him across this dimly lit visiting room. It was just the two of us this time. His lawyer had been at the first meeting, but this was just uh, Madoff and myself. And as I approached him across that room, I almost didn't recognize him. He was so much thinner and, and rumpled, a little disheveled, the button unbuttoned on his shirt, the collar askew on, on his shirt. And I was stunned by how much he had changed. And instead of being relaxed and charming, he was very intense, almost hard-driving um, and, and almost grim, it, as if he had a, just a clenched fist around his emotions. So I, I, I saw him quite shattered, and he seemed to have been blindsided by what happened to his family, what he did to his family. I don't think he was prepared for that at all. Do you think that they knew? I don't. I couldn't find any evidence whatsoever that Ruth, Mark, or Andrew knew about this fraud until Bernie confessed it to them in his study in the penthouse on the day before his arrest. Um, nor did they act like accomplices after he uh, made that disclosure. If you, you think about what happened there, he tells them that you know the jig is up, the fraud is crumbling down around his head, uh, you know, Ruth is stunned, Mark is speechless with fury. Andrew is in tears. Bernie himself is weeping. What doesn't happen next is nobody packs their bags, jumps in the company jet, and flees. And certainly the sons were young and portable and were facing, if they were his accomplices, the very real prospect of spending the rest of their lives in prison. They acted like people who knew they were financially ruined, but they did not act like people who were in immediate fear of being arrested and locked up for the rest of their lives any minute. Do you think any of Bernie Madoff's investors knew what was going on with this scheme, or was it a situation where they just felt like, hey, as long as they were making money, they weren't going to ask any questions? More the latter than the former. Um, I, I, I think people probably thought um, that Bernie was cutting corners somewhere. We know, I know for a fact that any number of European hedge fund managers and potential investors who inquired about Madoff firmly believed he was front-running, that he was putting his customers' orders ahead of his legitimate firm's orders and reaping bogus profits or phony profits that way. Um, he wasn't front-running, but he was always willing to encourage regulators to check him for front-running because he knew that was one crime they would never find him committing. But I think people did think he was uh, bending the rules a little bit, but I think they thought he was doing it in their favor uh, rather than at their expense. Uh, certainly, when you look at large financial institutions who were handling his bank accounts, who were handling the hedge funds that he was, who were doing business with him, um, their ability to talk themselves out of trouble, to be to receive reports that detail all kinds of potential problems with Bernie Madoff, and nevertheless to reassure themselves that nothing could go wrong, is actually quite remarkable. Um, and I'm going to be watching with great, great interest the lawsuits that are flowing out of this case in the years to come. One of the things you write about Madoff, and I'm quoting here, you write, Madoff wasn't inhumanly monstrous. He was monstrously human. Why is that distinction important? It's important because if we look 
for the next Bernie Madoff. Only among the people that we think we can identify as as monstrously inhuman, the, the, the monsters among us, the beasts, the sociopaths, the psychopaths, if we think we can recognize the next Bernie Madoff with that comforting little delusion, then we are just sitting ducks again, just sitting ducks. It's essential, and I hope people, if they take nothing else away from the Wizard of Lies, will take away a better appreciation for the nature of the, of the gifted Ponzi schemer, what, how they work, how they think, how they insinuate themselves into our trust and into our lives. Um, if we perpetuate this belief that there is something monstrous about them, then we will remain vulnerable to them forever. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Our guest is Diana Henriquez, author of The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and the Death of Trust. Diana, before I let you get away, have to wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold. Let's start with buy, sell, or hold the future of the printed newspaper. <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm going to cross my fingers and say hold. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? I think it's possible that the printed newspaper will remain a luxury item for um, the, uh, the literati for many generations to come. It's a very portable means of conveying information. It's, uh, it's colorful. It's light. You can drop it and it doesn't break. Uh, it doesn't require a battery. It's got a lot of, uh, of uh, singular qualities that make it a superb way to deliver information. It has some limitations, I know, but there, I think that there are going to be uh, people who are going to be willing to pay for that luxury item of a printed newspaper for a while yet. Um, so that's why I make it a hold rather than a sell, which is probably what you thought I should say. You have been a financial journalist for most of your professional career. Buy, sell, or hold the business of Facebook. Hmm. The business of Facebook. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not a financial analyst by any means, um, but I think I'd be leaning towards a sell on that, uh, just because social media, like my business, is changing so rapidly. Uh, it's mutating before our very eyes, and I think by the time people my age know what Facebook is, <laughs> it's probably time to look for what people half my age are excited about. <laughs> and finally, buy, sell, or hold a movie version of The Wizard of Lies. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Um, well, because I think it's one of the most fascinating stories I ever came across, uh, I, I'd certainly be buying that stock. And who are you casting as Bernie Madoff? Oh, goodness. You know, when we play this game at dinner parties, uh, we always, the, the table always cracks right down the middle into fiercely warring groups. Okay. On one side, Dustin Hoffman. On the other side, Robert De Niro. So take your choice. And when you're playing this game at dinner parties... Um, who do people generally cast in the movie version of The Wizard of Lies as Diana Henriquez? <laughs> Someone today suggested Joan Allen. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's, you know what? That's good. We, we were kicking around Annette Benning. We're thinking. Oh, that. I'm so flattered. <laughs> Thank you very much. The book is The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and the Death of Trust. It is a fascinating read. Go out and pick it up. Diana Henriquez, thanks so much for being here. 
Delighted, Chris. Thank you. You got money. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. Money makes the world go as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For a limited time, Motley Fool Pro, one of our premium services, is open to new members. So, for a free preview and your invitation to join Motley Fool Pro, go to surething.fool.com. I'm Chris Hill, and back in the studio with me, three of the guys who run a few more of our premium services, Seth Jason from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Tim Hanson from Motley Fool Global Gains, and James Early from Motley Fool Income Investor. Guys, we have just a couple of minutes. Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Tim Hanson, you're up first. Uh, Ajisin Raman, which is a... Uh, Gesundheit. Yeah. <laughs> Pick the complicated story since we have just a few minutes. It's a uh, quick serve uh, fast food concept in Asia. Um, they have recently come under fire because their pork broth is not made directly from pork bones, but rather processed from bone to powder and then back into broth at the restaurant. How dare they? How dare they? The stock is down 50%. And because that's kind of a stupid reason for a stock to be down 50%, Ajisin Ramen is on my radar. And the ticker symbol? Um, A-J-I-C-F. And the last time you had pork broth? Uh, July. Okay. James Early? Chris, I am staying with restaurants and going with, with Bob Evans, a grease pit of a place with a 3.3% <laughs> yield. It's a so-so stock. I'm not sure it's great. How's their pork broth? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they have pork broth or not, but I know they have greasy omelets. They've got I've a eaten. lot of pork um, products at Bob Evans. It is a, they do have a lot of, of sausage. Uh, CEO owns three-quarters of a percent of the company. Operational returns are okay enough for the restaurant industry, but I, what I love is the dividend growth is consistently 10 to 15% yearly, and that's a really good thing. Uh, I once ate a whole Bob Evans pie, actually, as as, as trivia, but I'm just trying to decide, is this a good company or not? So don't buy it, but it is on my radar. And don't eat a whole pie. Did you lose a bet? I came back from backpacking the Adirondacks, and all I could find was a Bob Evans, and I was like starving, and somehow that's like all I had. I don't remember the story, but it was- You don't remember your own story? (laughs) This was like 10 years ago. (laughs) Seth Jason? I'm going to have to go back to Tiffany. I talked a little bit about how the margins keep improving, and so I brought it up on my little nerd spreadsheet- the stock has, has been hammered over the past few weeks, up a little bit on the news of this earnings, but still down quite a ways. And I think you are going to, it's really tough to find a company as well known that is doing as well internationally as Tiffany. So I say buy on the weakness, buy especially if people start to worry about the economy again, because this one looks like a winner for a long time. And uh, last time you bought something from Tiffany? Wow, probably never. My what about the wife. last time you bought something somewhere else wife. and then she hit it in a Tiffany <laughs> box? In a Tiffany ah. box. Can you you know what? EBay? I would buy from Tiffany if there were one around maybe once in a while, but I'm so lazy. I go to I go to Blue Nile or I go to the nice jewelry store, King Jewelry, down on uh, on King Street. There. Nice, nice. little plug for King Jewelry in Old Town. They always fix my watches. Lovely service. They, no, they do great yeah. service there. I'm happy to give them a plug. All right. Seth Jason, James Early, Tim Hanson. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you, Chris. Chris. That's it for this edition of Motley Full Money. Our engineer is Gail Anya Nuevo, sitting in for the vacationing Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>